good singing, you may be seated. Well, I was supposed to be here last week. I spent it at home, and we were supposed to preach from Jude. I had a lot of jokes that I wanted to use, like, hey, Jude, but we're not using it anymore. That's probably not an appropriate song, but some of you get the reference. You can seek forgiveness after church. But we will skip Jude. I preached through Jude uh, probably a year and a half, two years ago, and so we will bypass that. But the message series was going to be for three Wednesday nights, life near the end. I found this wonderful picture of an island in the Greek archipelago. It is not Patmos, but I could imagine the Apostle John on an island just like this, stranded off of Asia Minor in the Aegean Sea between Greece and Macedonia and Asia Minor, Sent here as a prison island, now some of us think it's a paradise, but as a prison island at that time, uh, with no real way out. And so what we're going to do this Wednesday evening and next Wednesday evening is study 2 John and 3 John. So we went through Titus at the beginning of the year, and we're going to go through two more books of the Bible. Now, tonight's book is only 13 verses long, so you're welcome, but we're going to go through... This, looking at the fact, or considering the fact, that we are living near the end. If the Lord's return is soon, and we all believe it is, then we need to know how we ought to live and how we ought to behave ourselves. Well, tonight, as we look at 2 John, we're going to look at loving truth. If you're living at the end, the apostle writes in this little letter, you better love truth, because there's going to be a lot of lies all around. Well, let's read the letter, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into the message tonight. The Bible says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son." If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not in your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak to you face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. 
Amen. Father, help us this evening as we look at this letter. Short, but to the point. Help us to understand it, and may we understand who we are within this little letter. May we understand what John's point is. It's not just a letter to some lady in a church. It's a letter to us, the church, and the lady that is bluegrass even tonight. Bless us, I pray, as we look into this truth in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned in the beginning, I wanted to preach three letters, Jude, 2 John, and 3 John. If I had more Wednesday nights before the revival, I would have taken a few more and done the whole book of 1 John. Uh, Jude wrote his letter in the late 60s A.D., just before the fall of Jerusalem, but certainly when the last times were coming. Jude, having been written and dispersed to the churches, the New Testament letters then become silent until John begins to write 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. It was 20 plus years from the time that Jude wrote his letter that deal with the last times until John wrote these letters and the book of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Here's what the commentator John Phillips says about the three epistles that John wrote. He said, the three letters of John are very touching. We get a great picture of the aged apostle concerned about the inroads of apostasy in the church. Writing his impassioned first epistle, he adds, as it were, a postscript by writing another letter. Then he adds one more. Brevity is the hallmark of all three letters. The first letter from John is about 2,300 words. The second, only 245. The third, fewer still, barely 220. Only a little more than 2,800 words in all. We get the picture in this of John's feeling for the desperate urgency of the situation. He puts down his pen, picks it up again. Puts it down, picks it up. Puts it down a third time, picks it up. He is the last of the apostles, Philip says, and he is old. John himself is well over 90 by the time he's writing this. The times are uncertain. Nero has gone, but Dominician will soon pick up Nero's policy of persecuting Christians. Error is abroad. Tares are growing profusely, springing up everywhere among, among the wheat. And Christians are squabbling with each other. That's what we'll find in the next letter next time. So John writes and writes and writes, Philip's notes. His last two letters are mere memos compared to the whole of scriptures. But the Holy Spirit urged him to write them. The Holy Spirit breathed into them. The Holy Spirit saw to it that they were preserved, and the Holy Spirit brought them into the divine library, adding them to the book as almost his very last word before the apocalypse. We should certainly not make the mistake of underestimating, Phillips concludes, their importance simply because of their brevity. In my personal outline of these three letters, 1 John, you can write this on the back if you'd like, is about the triumphant life. You read those five chapters and you finish learning about light and life and love, and you will be able to live the triumphant life. That's why every new believer, when they get saved in this church, the first thing, if I'm talking to them, I say, go read 1 John. Read 1 John for two weeks straight, every morning, all five chapters. Well, that's a lot. We just found out it's 2,300 words. Can I tell you something? Most of my sermons are around 2,000 words. It's not that much to read 
that's that letter in one sitting. Second John that we're learning or studying tonight is about truth being loved. I titled the message Loving Truth, but it's about truth being loved by those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And third John, as we'll see next week, is about lived testimonies. Lived testimonies. So we turn our attention then here to second John. Look again in verse number four. We'll get the sense of the reading and then we'll jump into the preaching in your outlines this evening. In verse number four, he says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. First in our outlines this evening, I want you to write this down. Verses one through six of this little letter deal with you and I practicing truth. How do we go about actually living and doing the truth? If I love that which is true, if I love that which is real, if I love that which is absolute and defined by God, not defined subjectively from the will or the whims of mankind, but objective truth from God's own heart, I have to practice it. If I love something, I do it. Uh, My boys have taken up music throughout the years, but only one boy has stuck with music, and that is Drew, and he's becoming quite proficient. If you love something, you will practice it. My father knows that I used to bend soccer balls until they broke apart against the concrete wall at our house. I would kick and kick and kick, and I would juggle and dribble, and I would kick, and I would head, and I would shoulder, and I would do everything you would do in our soccer field in our side yard. Because I loved it, I practiced it. It's the same in our Christian life. You have to practice the truth. John the Elder writes to the elect lady, and may I submit to you, that is the church, John tells us that loving truth begins in our practice by those who are the elect, letter A. Who are the elect and who is the elect lady? Some commentators believe John was pinning a letter to a particular woman within the church at Ephesus or within the churches around the city of Ephesus, and that is possible. But may I submit to you, then he's also writing about another woman in another church at the very end of the letter when he says, the children of thy elect sister greet thee. I do not believe he is talking to a specific woman. I believe he's talking to the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, the local church. So the elder apostle is writing to the elect lady, to the church, and he's saying to the elect, here is how you practice your truth. We make much of election when we read it in the Bible. But election really isn't that complicated. God chose the parameters of salvation and sanctification. God chose to initiate the relationship with mankind by creating us in the first place. God chose to initiate the restoration of that relationship after the fall through a plan called salvation. He elected, he chose to do things, these things, and we choose to enter into that election. That's what he means by the elect lady. Those members of the New Testament church are part of the elect. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this evening, you are part of the elect. It is the church, then, that must practice truth. The Apostle Paul said it this way to Timothy. He said this in 1 Timothy 3 and verse number 14. These things write I unto thee, Paul adds, hoping to come to thee shortly. 
But, he says in verse 15, if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God or in the church. The church, he then goes on to say, is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of truth. When we do our Bluegrass 101 classes, we talk and teach what it means to be both the pillar and the ground of truth. The ground is that which is is stable or has stability. I, I often in my office, when we taught these with several in the class, I would point to the legs of the church. This building has a clear span, and if you took out all of the accoutrements here and all of the decorations and all the ceiling tiles, you would see that clear span steel go up, and it would tie together in the middle. But buddy, if you were here when they built this building at the bottom of that leg and the bottom of that leg and the bottom of the leg in the corner, it goes down 8 to 10 feet into the ground, that concrete block that it's sitting on. The truth of God is our stability. But number two, as the church, that pillar is what holds up the edifice. We are not just established in the truth. We're to hold it up. We're to demonstrate it. And what John says here is that you and I, as believers in the church, he says this, the truth dwelleth in us, in verse number two. He said, the tr- for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. What he's saying there is that truth is perpetual, and it is perpetually in us By the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. We, the believers of this age, are the only ones who actually know truth. Watch your news. See the world crumbling around us. I am struck recently of how many times I find, either in social media or in legacy media or in every kind of media, people asking How do we fix America? And the answer is with truth. With truth. And the only ones who can live and demonstrate truth are those that know it. And this is what John is saying. He's saying, look, if you're at the last times, every one of the New Testament writers tells us that in the last times, false teachers, evil men will be here. It will wax worse and worse. But those who know the truth will shine as lights. And so while we are on that island, and while we are near the end, truth must be practiced, and it must be practiced by the elect. Truth practiced by the elect will come then, let her be, with evidence. It's not just that in practicing the truth, it is we who have it that must be practicing it. Those that don't have truth cannot practice it. But as we practice it, he goes on to tell them in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 that there's going to be some evidence from the practice that you engage in. It will be seen. Our walk is the evidence that we either practice the truth or not. How you live what choices you make, the motivation behind your actions and your reactions, tell whether you are a lover of God's truth or not. By the way, you can be a Christian and not love truth. It's a terrible place to be in. You're of all men most miserable. But you can be a Christian and not love truth. Oh, but Christian... 
if we're going to practice the truth because we love the truth, there's going to be some evidence when we get engaged in practicing. And he gives us two examples. In verse 4, he says, it's, it's evident in the children's walk. If the elect lady is the church corporate, then the children are the members individual. When he talks about the children here, he's talking about the people that are the product of that place. When a man and a woman get married, the natural outcome of that, according to the word of God, the overwhelming outcome of that union is that they are fruitful and they multiply. They have children. And so the lady, the bride, wedded to Christ, will produce in that congregation Children And the Bible here says in verse number four, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. Now, again, if this is just some lady in the church, praise God, she was faithful and taught her kids how to walk in truth. Mamas, don't ever underestimate your importance. But if this is talking about the church, then it's essential for us. It's not just one person in the church, the pastor that lives by the truth, and the rest of us are rotten, stinking liars. It's that all of us, as children in this place, are growing up in the most holy faith, that we are exercising ourselves in godliness and in truth. The second thing that could be meant by this, because it has been so long since if this is the church at Ephesus he's writing to, it's been so long since it was initially planted by the Apostle Paul himself in roughly the 50 to 60 A.D. window, I mean, it's now a 40-year-old church, that it could be talking about the fact that there's been churches out of it, children out of that initial church. He might be saying, hey, you all have done such a great job, you've become a generational church, and it's not just that you, elect lady, are healthy and in the truth, but the evidence is you've gone and done the same thing with missionaries going out, with church planters in other parts of the area. Oh, I cannot wait till the day that that's true of us. Bluegrass is a church that was a child, a plant, from Fairfax Baptist Temple in Fairfax, Virginia. That's where I grew up. That's where I was saved. That's where God called me to preach. And when I came here to plant Bluegrass Baptist Church, there wasn't a soul of you that I knew before I planted the church. And I'm glad now that I know every soul that's in here. But we as a church are a child, and we should walk in truth just like the elect lady, Fairfax, Uh, planted us. They walk in truth. Fairfax funded my salary for the first year. Her membership gave a love offering to establish the initial finances of this place. Our work and our walk still today is a testimony to the truth that that elect lady practiced. There's always evidence of practicing truth. Someday there will be a church planted out of bluegrass. And that church will be a child of ours, and we pray will always be walking in truth. That's if they love truth as much as we do. There really is a familial symmetry to churches being started. The second thing he says in verses 5 and 6, and he kind of goes back to the children in the membership, he says, there's a chosen walk. And now I beseech thee, lady, he goes back to the corporate, He goes back to the body whole. Not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee. By the way, that phrase he uses at least three times in his first letter. Especially in chapters 2 and 3. There's not a new commandment I've written unto you. And then the very next verse he said, This new commandment I give unto you, which is live within the love and the grace of God as opposed to the law of Moses. 
There is certainly a chosen walk that we are to be living. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37 says this, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord. Here is that chosen walk of this new commandment. When he says in verse number 6, This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. This is the walk. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, Jesus says, and he's the living word, the Logos, hang all the law and the prophets. Everything in the Torah, everything in the Old Testament, everything to me, Jesus says, hangs on those two things. John indicates the same two commandments are what we must choose today in our walk. We choose to love one another and we choose to love God by keeping His commandments. Jesus said very clearly in John 14 and verse 15, If ye love me, what? Keep my commandments. That word if at the beginning of that verse has the sense of this, So you love me, keep my commandments. Sometimes when we read the word if in the Bible we think, well, I don't know, if I do today, I do, and tomorrow, if I don't, I don't. No, he's saying there, so you love me, so keep my commandments. John wrote this in his first letter, as I mentioned in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter number 3. Loving truth means practicing truth, but number two, it means protecting truth. Beginning in verse number 7, the apostle begins to lay out what the core of his issue is. He compliments them in the beginning, but now he gets to the core issue. And that is, you're letting deceivers in. Don't. Oh, the purity of the pulpit is essential within a church for its teaching ministry. He says, for many deceivers are entered into the world. Now, notice he hasn't said they've entered into the church yet, but they've entered into the world. Who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Uh, Can you imagine the denial here? What he does here in protecting the truth, he says, letter A, as you see on the boards, it is a protection from deception. What are we protecting from? The deceit, the deceivers, the deception. Jesus warned of false teachers who would be in the church, who would be in the world. But he noted that those would not be of the church, for they're not saved. Here's what Jesus said. It's on the front of one of our gospel tracts that we hand out here at the church. In Matthew 7, and verse 21 and following, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Now pause. There's a lot of preachers on your radio today that will be in this group. Be careful, elect lady, who you listen to for your truth. Jesus continues, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. He's not talking to the reprobate that comes to church just on Christmas. He's not talking to the person that said, I was saved as a child, but now I'm living in the gutter somewhere because of alcoholism or because of drug addiction or because of a wasted and ruinous life. He's talking about people that said, I did work for you. And he said, you've got to even protect yourself in truth from them. 
Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man. This is the picture of the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. This isn't just individually. Jesus is also talking corporately. Great was the fall of it. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at what? His doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Deception is overcome by knowing the truth. That is, that is why practicing truth is so essential. Because we love it and we practice it, we can easily spot when there's a lie. We know it. But let her be, it's through doctrine. That last phrase in that passage in Matthew 7, they were amazed at his doctrine. In verses 9, 10, and 11, John moves away from the deceivers and their personality and what they're doing and what we ought to do being aware of them. Look to yourselves in verse 8. That means look inwardly, manage or keep and guard yourselves. That we, the pastors, those who preach to you, do not lose the things which we have wrought or the work that we've done in your life. It begins in verse 9 then to talk about the transgressions against the doctrine of Christ. And the fact that we should be in a perpetual abideth is the idea of an ongoing state of residence within the truth of doctrine that Christ taught. Let me ask you a question tonight. It's Wednesday, so I can and you can answer. How firm do you hold to the core doctrines of our faith? And all of us would say, amen, preacher. I hold to them. All right, I'm going to get you. What's the next question? What are some of those doctrines of our faith? Yeah, I hold to them. I mean, it would be like me repairing my engine on my car. I'm going to do it, and by the time I'm done, my car doesn't run anymore. (laughs) I don't know how to do it. Do you know what the core doctrines of our faith are? Well, I know Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a good doctrine to start with, by the way. But there's far more to what we believe, what we know, what makes up who we are, than just little songs we sang in Sunday school. John says that we are to abide in the doctrine of Christ. What does this mean? The word doctrine here in 2 John is didache, I put in your notes. It means the teachings of Christ. What did Jesus teach about? I put a list. It's not nearly comprehensive or we'd be here all night. Jesus taught on loving God. Jesus taught about loving others. Jesus even taught us how to love our enemies. Jesus taught us about forgiveness 70 times 7. We are to forgive. If we don't forgive, our Father in heaven will not forgive us. I mean, there's a lot of teaching that Jesus gives on forgiveness. Jesus teaches us on prayer. When you pray, this is how you ought to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus taught on sinfulness. Jesus taught on sinlessness. Jesus taught us about salvation and the need for the salvation and the reward of salvation and what we get in salvation. These are the doctrines of Christ. 
All of Jesus' teachings are what the whole of the New Testament is built upon. He is the rock, and upon him he has built his church. And what John says here is, if we're at the end, we cannot be lazy Christians. We must protect the doctrines. One of the great truths, and please be in prayer for Brother Marty. They had moved Brother Marty into a different and more extensive wing, Marty Wilbur, where he's at there at Ashton Grove in the memory care unit. So be praying for him, be praying for Miss Judy as well. But one of the things I always loved about Marty when he sat right there in that chair for so many years, he would say to me, if I would ask him, Marty, what do you think the most important part about church is? He would say, doctrine, doctrine. That's exactly how he would say it. He's not wrong. He's always right. Every time I talked to him, it was one of those things that stuck in my heart. And when the guys cleaned out Brother Marty and Miss Judy's house, there were copious amounts of books because Marty, in his life, studied doctrine. It was important to him. It's the fundamentals of who we are and what we are. Our responsibility as a church and as members in particular is to protect the core teachings of Christ, not to corrupt them. Far too many corrupt the teachings of Christ. They bend them to their own will. Those are the deceivers. Those are who we avoid. We do not preach having teachers that we heap to ourselves having itching ears. We don't want somebody to just tell us how great we are. I know there are some services when I'm done. Some of you will come and say, that was a great message. Inside, you're probably thinking, you were a bit of a jerk today. I don't mean to be. But I'm going to be direct if the Bible is direct in that particular passage. He finishes by telling us at the end of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11, don't wish them Godspeed. When we bid someone Godspeed, we're hoping that God is in their efforts. We cannot wish Mormons, JWs, Catholics, Muslims, or any other religion cult that denies or changes the deity of Christ Godspeed or good luck. We wish them conversion, and I'm going to be real careful here, or damnation. We start with the first one. That's our objective, conversion. But ultimately, if they stay in a cult that denies Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah come to pay for the sins of the world, they are not bound for heaven, and they have with whom, one with whom they have to do. Not me. I'm here for their conversion, but their ultimate end is condemnation, Jesus said in John chapter 3. You cannot support a Christian pastor who is doctrinally in error or denies the truth about Jesus. That is why Christian radio and podcasts, I'm saying this as one who doesn't have a radio broadcast or a podcast, is dangerous. Pastor, I love this band on the radio. If their doctrine and their lifestyle and their performances are opposed to the doctrine of Christ, you shouldn't. But it's my jam. It shouldn't be. Oh, you just went to meddling again. I know. Better to meddle than to have a medley. Pastor, that's hard to say no to those things. Not really. How do I find out what their doctrine is? Study them. You'll find out real quick. Most of the time when you look really close with the magnifier, especially of doctrinal truth of the Word of God, you go, ooh, that person's pretty ugly. Oh, I I probably should not wish them Godspeed. They should not be on my Spotify. (laughs) 
final thing that we find in verses 12 and 13 is that we partner in truth. You and I are to be protecting truth as much as we are to be practicing truth. And this brings us to the partnering in truth. It's just two verses and they're pretty nominal when you compare to the end of Romans chapter 16 where there's a whole list of partners in the faith that Paul mentions or other letters. This is very nondescript, but it does teach us two simple things as we close. John is not with them physically, but is with them spiritually in these two verses. He wants the same things that they want. He wants to partner with their learning so that he might enhance their love for truth. Partnering in the Lord's work then, letter A, is joyous. It's joyous. Look in verse 12. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink. How else can you write? Paul says that the converts were written on the table of his heart to the Corinthians. And that means that the impact of the communication is not in pen form, but it's in personal form. He says, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face. Why? That our joy may be full. John says that seeing them in person, partnering in their efforts for the truth of Jesus Christ, was a joyous thought for him as it should be for them. The joy is in the communication that is face to face. There is a joy in coming to church. There's a satisfaction in being around fellow followers of Christ. There is a peace and contentment in the presence of those who believe like you do. Not because of a confirmation bias that takes over, but rather because of both the practice and the protection of truth. We know we're in safety. That truth resonates between us and within us. We're not gathering around subjective truth that changes. No, the joy is drawn from objective reality. We know God's real. We know God's working. And when we meet face to face, there's encouragement. Friends, we see how the world works. We know how the devil attacks. We feel our own flesh in its weakening. And conversely, when we come together, we understand how God the Son and God the Holy Spirit will enable us, empower us, and ultimately embolden us to take the truth out to the world. It's why you come on a tired Wednesday night in traffic and all the troubles of life, you come here not so you can hear a guy holler at you for 30 minutes, but that you can be encouraged. Finally, in letter B, the partnering in truth is justified. Verse number 13, again, I do not believe he's talking about Sister Susie in another church. I believe he's talking about another church. A church that he himself has already gone to and in partnership with and is probably heading their way. He says, hey, I'm writing this letter ahead of time because your sister, the elect sister, she and her children, she and her membership, they greet you. So be it. He justifies, not himself, but what God has called us to, and that is partnership. The elect sister here is a church that did not start from this particular church. She's a sister, not a daughter. You know, we have sister churches. 
even here in central Kentucky, that are good churches with godly people and sound Bible preaching, we should appreciate them. I'm always careful if somebody comes to our church from another church, I always will sit down with that person and make sure if it's local, why are you leaving and have you talked to your pastor? Because they are the elect sister, just like we are their elect sister. It is encouraging when we find and know about sister churches who love truth as much as we do. And that's what John is writing here. Too often, we, especially as independent Baptist churches, become isolated and insulated from any sister churches. Shame on us. We should be careful. That is not healthy. With the proper precautions and with healthy practice of truth, we can find other churches who love truth as much as we do and be justified in greeting and partnering with them for the cause of Christ. It's how we support our missionaries. It's one of the great joys of supporting the missionaries we do. They are actually coming from churches of like faith and practice, and we can see what that elect sister has accomplished. And someday, when somebody goes to the mission field from our midst, we will be the elect sister sending someone to them for support. So in closing, what a letter. Thirteen verses. And you know, in your Bible reading, when you see that on your Bible reading chart at the end of the year, you know, usually if you're going through in a year, you get to it in December, you're like, oh, sweet. Second John, I'm done quick. Don't breeze through these letters. Understand there's powerful lessons in them for us. Thirteen verses of truth written by the last living apostle to the church age broadly, us included, for those living near the end of all things, which is our church 2,000 plus years closer to the end than the church that received this letter. Loving truth is what he tries to tell us. It means practicing it, protecting it, and then ultimately partnering in it for the glory of God. Father, thank you for...